Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If you're committed to living a healthier life, you might want to look into working herbs into your wellness routine. There's a reason people have trusted them for thousands of years. Nature's Way understands that nature is the ultimate problem solver, and they're constantly inspired by the power of nature. For example, their ginger root and slippery elm bark have been traditionally used for digestive support. And St. John's wort, holy basil, and ashwagandha can provide mood and stress support. And because Nature's Way sources from around the world and does a ton of comprehensive potency and quality testing in their state-of-the-art lab, you can be sure you're getting top-quality herbs. To learn more, visit naturesway.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare hey everyone it's ted from consumer cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake-up call If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. On this episode of Newt's World... I'm really delighted to welcome Craig Whitlock of the Washington Post. His new book, The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War, is by far one of the most in-depth accounts of our 20-year war with Afghanistan, and it asks the fundamental question, what went wrong in Afghanistan? The book was published August 31st and does not cover the recent disastrous withdrawal, but as somebody who lived through this entire period and spent a good bit of the early years in the Pentagon working first with Secretary Rumsfeld. I am really interested in how this fits together and in Craig's perspective on this. There are many new revelations in the book from people who played a direct role in the war and they admit that the U.S. government's strategies were a mess, statistics were distorted, the nation-building project was a colossal failure, and the drugs and corruption infiltrated our allies in the Afghan government. So. Here to talk about his book is Washington Post investigative reporter Craig Whitlock, a three-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. He has covered the global war on terrorism for the Post since 2001 as a foreign correspondent, Pentagon reporter, and national security specialist. Craig Whitlock, thank you for joining me. If you don't mind, I want to start with your 2019 investigative report for the Washington Post, which I understand you had to sue the federal government to obtain access to previously undisclosed documents. That's right. It took us three years in federal court 
to obtain about 2,000 pages of notes and transcripts of interviews that a little known agency called the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction had conducted with more than 400 people who had played roles in the war starting in 2001 with the Bush administration all the way up to the start of the Trump administration. And the purpose of these interviews was for a project called Lessons Learned to try and learn from the mistakes made in Afghanistan. But for the most part, the Inspector General kept all these interviews private, kept them secret, not classified, but kept them out of the public's hands. And we felt that there was a very compelling public interest in knowing what these people had said about what went wrong in Afghanistan. So we pursued it pretty hard, but it took three years to pry them loose from that agency. Which in a sense, the agency should have been very committed to educating the public because how else are you going to get lessons learned out if you don't share them with people? Tells you a lot about the whole current model of national security that it very often doesn't tell us things that the other side obviously knows. Well, that's right. And in this case, the inspector general was issuing some public reports for this lessons learned program, but they omitted or sanitized all the, you know, the biggest revelations from their interviews, all the striking admissions of failure or missteps or where they got things wrong. The most stunning quotes, they kept all that suppressed. I think they were concerned that this was too hot for them to handle in a way. And so they put out a watered down report instead of what people were really, truly saying about what went wrong. You know, we started out with enormous energy and drive because we were so shocked by 9-11. I mean, the House voted 420 to 1, and then the Senate voted 98 to 0 to authorize the U.S. to go to war, not just in Afghanistan, but in an open-ended commitment against, quote, those responsible for the recent attacks launched against the United States. Representative Barbara Lee of California cast the only vote opposed to the war. In a sense, at the opening moment, we seemed to be very unified. And at the same time, ironically, NATO invoked Article 5, which is the alliance's collective commitment to defend any of its member states under attack. I don't think anybody who created NATO back in 1949 expected that the first time they would invoke Article 5, it was on behalf of the United States. So it was an amazing moment. Within 12 days of 9-11, on October 7th, we began bombing Afghanistan. The Taliban surrendered in Kandahar on December 9th, and the U.S. began to fight them again in earnest on March of 2002. I'm curious, as you looked at it, did we really have any kind of coherent strategy for what we were going to do? Well, no. And in fact, when you read the transcripts of these interviews, the thing that was most surprising to me is... I think people knew, obviously, the war hadn't been going well for some time. But most Americans, I think, assume there's some kind of plan, that there was some kind of strategy. It just maybe it was misguided or going in the wrong direction. But in those early years of the Bush administration, there were actually some commanding generals who said, we didn't have a strategy. One of the first generals was a guy named Dan McNeil. It was an Army three-star who was commanding troops in Afghanistan in 2002-2003. He was interviewed and he said, we didn't have a campaign plan. My orders were to go kill terrorists and that was about it. And I thought maybe he was exaggerating because what kind of general admits they don't have a plan or a strategy? But later on, one of his successors, a British general named David Richards, who was in charge of U.S. and NATO troops, also said, we didn't have a strategy. We had a lot of tactics, but we didn't have a proper strategy. 
And to me, I'm not a trained military historian, but if your commanding generals are admitting they didn't have a functional strategy, that's pretty alarming and really says just how adrift things were. I happen to think that's accurate, technically, that we did not have a strategy. But as somebody who's worked with the American military since 1979, in a sense, the generals who were complaining about it are the guys who are supposed to design a strategy. They had every opportunity to go back and say, shouldn't this be our strategy? Well, that's right. And that's certainly fair comment. I mean, it's not like they're powerless. Along those lines, one of the next generals is a guy named David Barno, another three-star. He came into Afghanistan about 2003. And he said he recognized at that time that they needed a new strategy. It wasn't just a matter of hunting down members of al-Qaeda or old Taliban leaders. He saw that the Taliban was slowly starting to regroup in Pakistan and along the border. And he said, rather than just a counterterrorism strategy, we need a counterinsurgency strategy, meaning we need to get the Afghan people on our side and essentially combat this insurgency, this guerrilla war that was picking up in intensity. The irony is he said the army hadn't taught counterinsurgency since Vietnam and that he had to go back to his textbooks from when he was a student at West Point in the early 1970s to come up with a counterinsurgency strategy. And then he said, on top of that, of course, they had difficulty getting the resources they need in Afghanistan because of what was going on in Iraq. So he was casting about for a strategy. But when you're having to consult your textbooks from 30 years earlier, you know, that's probably not a good sign either. By the way, as an aside, I had dinner one time with Curtis LeMay and asked him about his very famous decision to have the B-17s fly straight and ignore German anti-aircraft. He said it was based on pulling out his 1929 Ohio State University ROTC textbook on artillery and looking at it and realizing that all the German anti-aircraft was all random. So there's no point in dodging back and forth because they weren't aiming. And he said when he met with his officers and he convinced them that they were going to fly straight, and they said, we can't fly straight. That'll make us too easy to shoot at. And he said, well, if you're not hitting anything, dodging and weaving, so if you don't want to fly straight, we're going to ground all the airplanes and save the taxpayer all that gasoline money. <laughs> and they said, all right, we'll fly straight. And so he led the first raid, which I think was at Schweinfurt, about a 1,000 planes. And he was the lead plane. He said, I'm going to, I'll fly straight, and you guys follow me. He said, I have to tell you, I was really worried as we approached Schweinfurt, and I thought to myself, God, I hope that textbook is right. <laughs> so sometimes these guys do go back to the basics in order to figure out, in his case, it was a huge, enormous change in what we were doing. Well, I guess they have some pretty good textbooks at West Point. They leave an impression <laughs> on the guys who become generals. That's a good thing. Well, you know, I don't know if you've ever read Nagel's book on eating soup with a knife. Yeah, I have his counterinsurgency book about what the British faced in Malaysia and other cases. The degree to which we just could not adjust in Vietnam. We could not figure out how to apply a genuine counterinsurgency strategy. I, I called him one day and I said, you know, how did this affect your career, having written such a tough book? And he said, well, it didn't hurt it at all because nobody in the army read. So nobody understood what he was saying. But what he was saying is, I think, still to this day true, and that is we do not have a coherent, effective counterinsurgency strategy, even though we're probably involved in 20 or 30 insurgencies around the world right this minute. 
places like Boko Haram in northern Nigeria or Al-Shabaab in Somalia. So it's fascinating. And, and you're looking at what I think was 20 years of enormous effort at a tactical level with zero strategic overlay. Well, I think you're right, though, Mr. Speaker. I think you bring up actually a much bigger point, which is we haven't figured out an effective counterinsurgency strategy anywhere. Afghanistan's been getting all this focus, but you know we faced these insurgencies in parts of Africa, North Africa, Middle East, Afghanistan, and not once have we really figured out a truly effective way of countering it, despite all the resources at our disposal and despite these last 20 years. It's hard to say that we figured out a model for applying it in new places that might come up. And that, to me, that's pretty sobering. It's not just the mistakes we made in Afghanistan, but we still haven't figured out what to do in these situations, which will inevitably arise somewhere else. You had been actively and aggressively covering the war. And in the summer of 2016, you got this tip about the Office of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. How did it feel to suddenly discover after you've already been looking at this thing for over a decade, that this office is sitting there doing something that actually fits perfectly into what you're trying to do? Well, my the antenna went up, right? Because we had been thinking at that point in 2016, President Obama, as you recall, had promised to end the war, bring home all U.S. troops by the end of his second term. He failed to do that. But the assumption was at that point that the war was winding down, that the U.S. involvement would be minimal, if not gone completely. So journalistically, I was looking for a way to say, okay, let's get our arms around what happened in Afghanistan, what went wrong, but how do we report that? How do we tell that story? Because the war has been going on for so long. And normally, if you're a reporter, you go out and you interview a bunch of people, but there were so many people involved. You know, we wanted to have some focus to our efforts. So when I found out the inspector general had been conducting these interviews, I thought, well, maybe that's a structure for us to get a story in. What approach were they taking? Were these interviewees being blunt? And that's what I'd heard, that the inspector general had actually done an interview with Michael Flynn, who at that time was becoming more well-known publicly because of his support for President Trump during the 2016 campaign. And I knew Flynn, when he was in the military, he had a pretty good reputation for speaking his mind and being blunt. He had been in charge of U.S. and NATO intelligence in Afghanistan. So I was really interested to see what he said. That was really the genesis for the whole thing. We had to sue under FOIA to get the notes and transcripts of his interviews. He was very blunt. He talked about, you know, for years, we always say we're winning in Afghanistan, but when I'm on the ground or I get the reports from the unit level, nobody says we're winning. It doesn't feel like we're winning. So why do we keep saying we are? You know, he was willing to get past the rhetoric and have a pretty blunt assessment. So once I saw his interview, I knew we had to get the rest because if the rest were anywhere near as open and revelatory as his was, that was going to be an important story. Jake Tapper wrote a very interesting book called The Outpost. And the wife of the captain at The Outpost actually worked with us for over a year while he was here going to Georgetown. And so I had a sort of personal interest in the book. But what really struck me about the book was here you have the most powerful nation in the world. And because we're trying to do all this on a shoestring, and we had diverted so many resources to Iraq, we had small numbers of troops out here at a massive disadvantage for no good reason. I mean, we had the sheer capacity, if we wanted to, to totally dominate. And we kept nickel and diming ourselves 
so that in a way we stayed marginally. It's a little bit like looking at some of the Western wars between the U.S. cavalry and Native Americans, where there were so few cavalry in some of those stages, not because this huge country back east didn't have a lot more people, but it was just the politicians were being cheap. And yet a similar feeling here that we were putting young men and women at enormous risk because of the way that the bureaucracy decided to divide up its resources. And I don't know to what extent that shows up in the report that was done, but it was both we didn't have a strategy. Now, we did surge enormously at one point under Obama, but as a general rule, we tried to get by on the cheap in Afghanistan against an enemy. So we almost reduced ourselves to making sure it was a fair fight for the Taliban, which it didn't have to be. That's right. And in doing my research for the book and for our Afghanistan paper series in the Post, we also obtained thousands and thousands of memos that former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld had dictated. And we sorted out the ones about Afghanistan. And you'll remember this. You had been sending a number of memos to Rumsfeld from when you were on the Defense Policy Board, I believe, at the time. And I recall distinctly, there were a few memos from you to Rumsfeld saying, look, the war in Afghanistan is under-resourced. You're not devoting enough there to accomplish what we need to do. And certainly during the first Bush administration up till 2004, that was the case. That was the time when the Taliban was at its weakest and when the Afghan government needed the most help to build up. And when we needed to accelerate our efforts to build up an Afghan army and police force, but we did it on the cheap. And that was the moment when perhaps we might have had the most effect. But when we waited several more years later to under Obama to try and fix those problems, it was almost too late. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. There's a theory about change where you sort of ice, you thaw out into water, and then you refreeze in a new configuration. And in a sense, we had a brief moment where we could have defined what it was going to come back as. But one of the challenges, I'm really curious to get your reaction to this. I don't know what we do in a place where opium is a major source of revenue, I mean, enormous, maybe a third of the GDP, and where the politicians are endemically corrupt as a matter of the whole nature of the culture. And so it's very hard to build a Western-style military if everybody above the private soldiers is on the take. And I'm curious what your thoughts are, because it does seem to me that having picked Karzai and then staying with Karzai, no matter how corrupt he was, and then watching the bureaucracies sort of loot the Western aid in ways that were culturally totally appropriate for the Afghan history, but made it impossible to really build the kind of systems that we had fantasized we could build. Do you have any thoughts about whether there was an alternative that might have worked? You know, that's a million-dollar question. What was the alternative? But certainly the way we went about it was kind of ham-handed. And I think we never settled on a consistent approach, certainly not one that was effective. But the problem is we kept bouncing around. One minute we'd decide that corruption was a major focus, very important, and we'd spend about a year trying to do something about it. Then we decide that it's too hard, so we're going to give up. And same with opium. Afghanistan is the world's largest supplier of opium used for heroin, and yet we could never really figure out what to do about it. In the early years, the British were in charge of trying to deal with it, and they would offer Afghan farmers cash to destroy their crops. So the Afghans, being very clever, planted more and more opium because they knew the British would pay them more and more to burn it. That obviously was a blunder. So then under the Bush administration, we decided to eradicate the plants where we'd go into the fields, hire Afghan laborers to whack the plants with machetes or drag tractors through and physically try and destroy the opium poppy plants. Well, that, of course, just backfired because then the farmers who were dependent on this for their livelihood would join the Taliban or would support the insurgency. Under Obama, they took yet another approach, which was, okay, we're not going to punish the farmers. We're just going to try and persuade them to grow other crops like pomegranates and wheat and things like that. And again, we made it easier for them to grow those other crops, but they still kept planting more opium poppies, right? Because that's the most profitable crop of all. And we never really understood that the only effective way to do something about the problem, frankly, was to stabilize the country. As long as the country was at war, as long as their economy 
you know, it wasn't peaceful there. What else could farmers do other than grow a crop that was the, the easiest and best way to earn money for them and their families? So I think we tried all these approaches. None of them worked, but we kept bouncing around. So again, there was no consistency. And that by itself is a recipe for failure. I talked to a number of folks who serve on the front lines. One of them was a Navy lieutenant who actually ended up working a town very close to the Pakistani border in an area that was very, very traditional. You have to ask yourself, given the size of our Army and our Marine Corps, why do we end up with a naval officer leaving his ship to go and sit there? But he did, and that was his assignment. But he said to me, he said, we don't understand that the two primary sources of wealth and prestige for an Afghan male are their goats and their wives. And we kill their goats, and we threaten to liberate their wives, leaving them impoverished and totally in a culture they have no understanding of. And he said, and we think somehow they're going to like us. And he said, I spent a year and a half in that town watching, for example, a woman would come in with her husband, and she would sit facing the wall while he shopped so that she would not be tempted. And she couldn't move until he came back, and then she would follow him, and they'd go back to their farm or whatever. And he said, the idea that we were somehow going to magically turn a switch and have them participate in a 21st century society, he said, they found that as terrifying, not as an opportunity. Well, I think that's right, and this illustrates a bigger issue, is our troops on the front lines, the ones who are having the most interactions with the Afghans, they saw the futility in a lot of this. The idea that we could transform the society was just not realistic. But still, our overall approach from the higher levels at the Pentagon or the White House under multiple presidents was this assumption that we could change Afghanistan, that we could transform it into a Switzerland of South Asia, as you will. And, you know, I get it. The intentions sometimes are noble, right? That The Taliban treat women terribly, no question, right? It's a brutal way that they deal with women in Afghanistan in a large degree. And it's hard to stand by and watch that happen. You want to help the country modernize in that regard. But this wasn't the purpose why we went to war in Afghanistan. In 2001, the mission was very clear at first. President Bush said, we're going to Afghanistan to eliminate al-Qaeda and to prevent a repeat of September 11th. And for the first six months, that made sense and that worked. But by the time we hit the spring of 2002 and the Taliban was gone and Al-Qaeda's presence had disappeared from Afghanistan, that's when mission creep started to set in. And we started seeing all these other goals or noble objectives that we wanted to help with. But, you know, things got blurry. That wasn't why we went to war, was to modernize Afghanistan or for women's rights. Those are nice things to have, but that isn't why we went to war. And I think we lost focus after the first six months, and we never really figured things out after that. Yeah, I mean, it seemed to me that both in Iraq and in Afghanistan, an expeditionary force strategy of going in, decisively defeating your enemy, and getting out, and then letting the country sort itself out and tolerating that it's going to be whatever it's going to be, because you don't have the resources and the patience and the brutality. Changing cultures like that requires a very high level of force because that's what they're used to. People who defeated the Soviet Union were not necessarily intimidated by us. And I think we really misunderstood that. 
Well, it's interesting. I think we understood it at the beginning. I mean, you see this in transcripts of interviews or public appearances with President Bush and Secretary Rumsfeld. They were very concerned about sending too many troops to Afghanistan because they knew what had happened to the Soviets in the 1980s. They didn't want to be seen as an occupying force. They wanted allies to send some troops in to help with reconstruction, but they wanted to keep a light footprint because they were mindful of what happened to the Russians, mindful of what happened in Vietnam. They didn't want to stay too long because they knew Afghanistan had a long history of not tolerating foreign invaders or foreign occupation troops. But yet as time went on, that's exactly the mistake we made. We sent more troops, more troops, and the longer that they stayed, more Afghans who were either fence sitters or maybe they didn't care about the government in Kabul, they didn't really like the Taliban. But once they saw these foreign forces there year after year after year and things weren't necessarily getting better, they it becomes much easier for the Taliban to say, help us expel the foreign invaders, help us expel the infidels, right? That becomes an irresistible message, even for Afghans in rural areas who otherwise didn't want the Taliban. They didn't see that the Americans were doing them much good. So, you know, the longer we were there, the worse it got in that sense. Does it strike you the parallel in that you quote several people as talking about data points? I mean, Bob Crowley, who's an army colonel serving as a senior counterinsurgency advisor, told the interviewers that every data point was altered to present the best picture possible. Surveys, for instance, were totally unreliable but reinformed that everything we were doing was right. That sounds so much like the body count model we used in Vietnam under Westmoreland. I mean, it's eerie to see the institution reverting to the same bad practices a generation later. And it wasn't just at that level in the field. There were also some documents some interviews with White House officials, including people on the National Security Council under Obama. There was one in particular the person's name was redacted and we're still fighting in court to identify this person. But this National Security Council official under Obama said that this distortion of statistics went all the way to the top. Whenever they were presenting packages or talking points for the president or people at the cabinet, there was this deliberate effort to spin or distort the metrics, as they call them. And, you know, it would be these ridiculous explanations. If violence was going up in Afghanistan, the spin would be, well, there's more targets for the Taliban to shoot at because we sent more troops. So that's why violence is getting worse. And then if violence would keep getting worse or they'd have more and more suicide attacks, the spin would be, well, the Taliban's desperate. All they can do are suicide attacks because they can't fight us in a conventional sense, right? So no matter what happened, there was always a way to make it look like it was progress. And this was admitted again by a White House official that this was deliberately done and went all the way to the top. And it's exactly the kind of thing that happened in Vietnam. I can't say why we didn't learn our lessons from that, but there's no question the same thing was going on. Well, and my hunch is that the current Pentagon has now cheerfully given up thinking about counterinsurgency. You know, large bureaucracies do what make them comfortable. And if they really were to stop and say, this is my view, you may not agree, Craig, but my view is that the most powerful nation in the world in the 21st century in the end was defeated largely by a 7th century tribal faction. The one line that the Taliban had that I thought was almost perfect was that the Americans had the watches, but we have the time. Well, that's right. And it's hard to argue with your assessment. We were defeated. We weren't defeated in the traditional military sense that we weren't 
whipped on the battlefield. You know, we didn't suffer a military loss, but in terms of an insurgency, yeah, we lost, you know, because look who's in charge now. The Taliban controls more of Afghanistan now than they ever did. They have more fighters, you know, people under arms than they did when they controlled the country. So they're more powerful now in many regards than they were 20 years ago. So certainly from the Taliban's perspective, this was a clean cut victory for them. Yes, it took 20 years, but they take pride in that, that they could outlast the American superpower. And you're also right. I think the Pentagon, the Defense Department still hasn't figured out what to do with insurgency. So it's kind of sworn off counterinsurgency as a dirty word they don't want to deal with. They'd rather deal with other conflicts. So we've not yet learned our lesson what to do when this kind of conflict arises. And that's unfortunate because you can see in other countries like Somalia or Yemen or other parts of the Middle East or in North Africa, these insurgencies aren't going to go away and we still haven't figured out an effective way for countering them. No, I think that's right. What's disturbing is that the system itself, even at the peak of the Iraq war and and the Afghan war, there was a huge underlying bias to minimize the investment and to protect the traditional systems as though we were going to fight the Russians in central Germany. So you had this constant protectiveness of training and of, say, heavy armor as opposed to thinking through what we really need to fight in a place like Afghanistan. And it worries me because I don't see any reaction that says, you know, we need to really profoundly rethink both our counterinsurgency, but also our underlying systems of being honest about ourselves. Because I think we're lying about China at least as much as we lied about Afghanistan. We've had three and four-star admirals who have said, every war game we fight with China, we lose. Now, you would think that would lead to sort of a crisis of thinking we better do things differently. So the Afghan experience of fudging the data in order to avoid having to tell the truth about it and avoiding having to really rethink what you're doing, that pervades the system at large, not just on the counterinsurgency, but across the whole system. I think it's a very deep systems problem and a very deep cultural problem. And I think what your book does, because you know this is not you as an investigative reporter giving us your opinion, this is you calmly laying out what the military and the senior officials said to themselves. And it's really sobering. Well, it is. And I think you're right about the Pentagon and the Defense Department. It can be a pretty hidebound bureaucracy, and they're very good at protecting weapons programs and you know, at a tactical level in terms of spending, and they aren't really as concerned about future strategic threats. And this is something the Pentagon's always had trouble with. Of course, what it takes sometimes is for a new crisis to focus the mind, and even then, it's very difficult. I mean, you'll recall Secretary Rumsfeld before September 11, 2001, he was pushing this quote-unquote transformation agenda at the Pentagon, where he was trying to switch from these old Cold War weapon systems and bureaucracies and say, we need to have a more nimble, responsive force that we can project overseas. And, you know, things got distracted a bit because of what happened on 9-11, although, you know, part of Rumsfeld's thinking in that regard was better suited to like wars in Afghanistan, to use special forces, special operation forces. There were changes to use robotic aircraft, things like this. 
So there were some changes made, but it was difficult. His successor, Bob Gates, who was defense secretary under Obama and Bush, said, you know, this was a constant problem for him. He'd be in the Pentagon hallway saying, you know, we're fighting a war in Iraq and Afghanistan, but a lot of the officers or civilians in the Pentagon were detached from it. They were just focused on their legacy programs. And it was very difficult to get people to change their mindset in that regard. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. I just this morning read Rumsfeld's September 10th, 2001 speech on transforming the Pentagon. I mean, the day before 9-11 occurs, Rumsfeld is outlining a very profound, fundamental reshaping of the Pentagon, which I think was largely derailed because you couldn't ask the system to simultaneously fight two wars and engage at the senior levels in fundamentally rethinking what it's doing. We're still stuck exactly where we were on September the 10th. It would have been very interesting to have an alternative world in which there was no war and Rumsfeld was able to actually engage. It would have been a titanic struggle. I mean, the, the system is really big and it's really dense and it really has a huge number of lobbyists and the big producing companies. The fight that that would have been would have been spectacular. Congress also has a stake in the status quo, and they don't like big disruptions in the way things work because, you know, they're concerned with jobs in their districts and other connections. So it's not just the Pentagon, it's Congress, too. But even then, sometimes there are some leaders in Congress who do try and 
modernize procurement systems and try and change things. But it's just a really, really difficult bureaucracy to transform. And sometimes you almost need a president who can be in office for eight full years who doesn't have a war going on to institute the kind of reforms or changes that might take root. Short of that, the Pentagon bureaucracy, and you mentioned the Taliban having the watches and all the time, that same could apply to the Pentagon bureaucracy too. They know they can outlast whoever is president. They're only going to be there a number of years, then there will be somebody new in. It's the same kind of a thing. A senior Bush appointee said to me one day, he said, the term in the Pentagon for the political appointees is the summer help. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And even then it takes many, many months to get the summer help in place, right? They're not there for four years even. They're there for maybe three, maybe two, maybe one. I think the average is 18 months. Yeah, I mean, that's no way to run a railroad, right? Right. It's, It's not very effective. In terms of not being defeated militarily, one of the most interesting books to come out of Vietnam was by Colonel Harry Summers, in which he took Clausewitz and rethought Vietnam in the context of Clausewitz's work. And he got into it because as the war ended, he got in a conversation with a North Vietnamese colonel and he said, you never defeated us on the battlefield. And the colonel said, that was beside the point. Our job was to win the war. That's right. And you you could imagine any number of Taliban commanders thinking or saying the exact same thing. Exactly. I actually got very sobered I think it was in the spring of 2003. Rumsfeld had asked me to come in specifically to advise on transformation. Then I got involved in all this other stuff. And Callista and I went to Ireland. And I spent some time looking at the Irish rebellion, both in 1916 and then in the 1920s. And it just hit me that, I mean, the British Empire in the end lacked the will and lacked the capacity to defeat a very small number of Irish revolutionaries. And I thought, you know, the idea that we're going to go into a place like Afghanistan or Iraq and have an easy time is just a profound mistake because that's not how the world works. And I really left there deeply troubled by how hard these problems are to try to solve and how some of them are not very solvable. Well, I think that last part you mentioned, that's the truth in some instances. And one, as a country, we've never been able to accept. Like in Afghanistan, we always kind of thought that the more troops and money we threw at the problem, we could fix it. You know, with enough time, with enough persistence, we can fix anything. And, you know, that spirit is laudable in the military in some sense, that can-do spirit, that there aren't problems, there's only challenges, right? That's something you hear a lot in the Army. But you know, after a while, it's like, okay, do we really want to solve all of Afghanistan's problems? Are we going to really transform this country? But this, again, gets back to the original purpose of the war. If we kept it focused on al-Qaeda, I think we were pretty successful up front. And over time, we've done a fairly good job of going after the original al-Qaeda central organization. But then we became embroiled in a war in Afghanistan. It wasn't a war against al-Qaeda, we somehow got stuck in a war in Afghanistan that was essentially a civil war in some regards. And we didn't make the distinction. Why are we fighting a war in Afghanistan? If we just kept it to we're fighting al-Qaeda, I think that would have gone a long way to keeping us from getting bogged down in Afghanistan like we did in Vietnam. Yeah, and one of the problems is 
And Somalia is a good example. After Black Hawk Down and the loss of 19 Americans, we pulled out. Well, in retrospect, that might have been the right thing to do. At the time, I was very critical of Clinton for doing it. But we weren't going to gain much ground in Somalia. I mean, we didn't understand the tribal fights. We didn't understand the gangs. And historically, prior to, say, World War I, the level of ruthlessness that industrial countries would use changed the game because you just killed lots of people. Well, we're not prepared to do that. And if you're not prepared to do that, you'd better design a strategy about who you really are. You know, Sun Tzu in The Art of War says, you have to know the enemy and know yourself. Well, Somalia is a great example of this. As you mentioned, Black Hawk Down under the Clinton administration almost 30 years ago now. For the public, this is largely under the radar, but we've been involved militarily in Somalia for many years now, under Obama, under Trump, and now under Biden. We send special operations forces there. We have small units that stay there for a period of time. We've been flying lots of drone operations because we're trying to fight this Al-Shabaab group, which is a Somali group. And there's no question they're pretty brutal jihadists. But we're fighting them because we think they're affiliated with Al-Qaeda. And there's certainly some sympathies there. But why are we engage in this war in Somalia. Who's the enemy? What are we really trying to accomplish? And we've tried everything. We've sent troops there to stay. We've pulled them out. We've tried air wars. We've tried nation building. Frankly, none of it's really working. It, it may be one of those unsolvable problems. I don't know, but this is the kind of insurgency still we aren't quite sure what to do about. I had lunch one time with Mark Bowden, who wrote Black Hawk Down, and he said he got money from the paper to go do this book, and he wanted to interview Somalians. He wanted both sides of the story. So he goes into Somalia by himself, and he hires a local guide, and he is staying at the only hotel that's open, and he is the only hard currency guest at the hotel. And after about a week, the gang which has been guarding him comes to him and says, we're very uncomfortable guarding an American. And we think he should leave the country. And so he's pretty worried about that. <laughs> and he goes and says to the hotel owner, you know, I'm going to have to leave. And the hotel owner, seeing his only hard currency guest, says, you know, why do you have to leave? And he said, well, you know, this gang that's been protecting me said they're not going to protect me anymore. And he said, they're not the government. He said, hire a bigger gang. So the hotel owner helps him find an even bigger gang who, for even more money, which shortens his stay, agree they will protect him, at which point the smaller gang lets him alone because they don't want to take on the bigger gang. But I thought to myself, you couldn't sit in the Pentagon and design this. It's a level of chaos and a level of being beyond control that we're very uncomfortable with. And I think that we underestimate how many places there are in the world that we're not able to impose civilization in our terms because they have layers of resistance that are, you know, centuries deep and are life and death. Well, that's right. I mean, in the other country that's near Somalia that comes to mind like that is Yemen. You know, we've done this very similar thing. We've invested a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of troops to Yemen. Most of it, again, is out of the headlines or not on TV, but you know, Yemen and Somalia are two countries where, yes, there's a strong jihadist presence. Yes, there's people who 
are affiliated with Al-Qaeda. And I'm not trying to minimize that threat, but we've never really figured out a long-term effective strategy for containing insurgencies or containing the terrorist threat from those countries in that regard. And that's something I'm still worried about. It's not just Afghanistan, although certainly, you know, with the Taliban in charge, there's legitimate reason to worry there too. But there's all sorts of countries like this. We can turn to China all we want at the Pentagon. You know, that's important. I'm not trying to dismiss that, but the rest of the world's going to keep percolating and we still haven't figured out a way to confront or deal with these threats in an effective and manageable manner. Well, in the most populous country in sub-Saharan Africa is Nigeria, and Boko Haram is a very real threat. And we don't have any kind of strategy for seriously helping the Nigerian government win that struggle. As an example, what you're saying, I have two last questions for you. One is, because you'd already been covering all this before you got into this documents, so you'd had years of experience. What was the biggest surprise to you? The biggest surprise in these interviews, the notes and transcripts were just the frank admission of failure of people saying they didn't know what they were doing. There were two in particular. There was Lieutenant General Doug Lute, who was the war czar at the White House under Bush and Obama. And he said, we were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. He said, 2,400 lives lost. Who will say this was in vain? And for an army general to suggest that when he refers to 2,400 lives lost, of course, he's talking about the number of U.S. troops have been killed, but to even suggest the possibility that those lives may have been lost in vain, that's just astonishing because they never do that in the military. You always venerate the sacrifice no matter what the situation was. And I'm not criticizing Lute here. I think he was being honest, but he's raising this very basic question what did we accomplish in Afghanistan? Why did we have to pay this price? The other thing, there was an interview with Richard Boucher, who had been in charge at the State Department of our diplomacy in South Asia, including Afghanistan under Bush. And he said very simply, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what we were doing in Afghanistan. So here these senior officials admit that we just plain didn't know what we were doing. You know, as a journalist, you'd never expect somebody to say that, right? You always assume that they would be self-critical, but just so bluntly admit they didn't know what they were doing in America's longest war, that's pretty astonishing. And it still sits with me today like that. And it's sobering that not having had a strategy, people at a very senior level didn't stop and say, you know, we had better hammer out a strategy before we go much further. I mean, these things are hard. That's why World War II on the Allied side was done brilliantly, because to get the Americans and the British to work together, they had to actually sit in a room and hammer out a strategy. They couldn't afford to just do everything. And they knew it. I mean, they were very, very aware that you couldn't just throw resources randomly around the planet. But that whole discipline has somehow been lost. You see this under Obama when General Stanley McChrystal took over in 2009. He and Obama tried to come up with a new strategy. I mean, this enhanced counterinsurgency strategy. But in the documents we obtained for the book, there's an interview with a NATO official who's saying that McChrystal's original strategy review, this 70-page report that was shared with our allies, it barely mentioned al-Qaeda, just talked about defeating the insurgency in Afghanistan. But this NATO official said, of course, the whole reason we were supposed to be there was because of al-Qaeda. So we had to get McChrystal to put it back in, right? You know, it was just 
even at that level, even when they're doing this major strategy review that has all the time and attention of the White House and the Pentagon, they still lost sight of why we were there. And I was shocked by that. So my last question for you, because you've done extraordinary work, and this is a major contribution, I think, which I hope that the professional military education people will take seriously and continue to buy your book for many, many years to come. But I'm just curious, because you're such a great investigative reporter. What's your next big project? Well, so I have another book I'm working on about a guy named Fat Leonard, and he was a defense contractor to the U.S. Navy in Asia. He's a Malaysian. And this became the biggest corruption scandal in U.S. military history. This is a case where more than two dozen U.S. Navy officers have been convicted of bribery or related charges. And it's a story of how this sort of fantastic character, a Malaysian who supplied U.S. ships in Asia, was able to penetrate the Navy at very high levels. So that's my next project. I hope when the book comes out, you'll come back into another podcast because it You are fascinating and you do very important original work and I commend you and I hope that this podcast will help sell a few more books. Thanks very much for having me on. Really enjoyed the discussion and appreciate it. Thank you to my guest, Craig Whitlock. You can learn more about the 20-year war in Afghanistan on our show page at newsworld.com. Newsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If you haven't heard, it's a good idea to fit probiotics into your daily routine. Fortunately, Nature's Way women's probiotic pearls make that so easy. These adorable little pearls couldn't be easier to take, and they support both digestive and vaginal health, all because of the probiotics. There are actually one billion active cultures protecting against occasional bloating, constipation, and digestive discomfort, all in one tiny little pearl. To learn more about Nature's Way women's probiotic pearls and how they can fit into your routine, visit naturesway.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you
love you, Dad. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo. Play.